Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, people, it's it's another uh, hot day here in New Jersey, and I was thinking the Philadelphia Eagles play tonight, and when the game starts, it's supposed to be like 90, but it's supposed to feel like 95, because that's a big thing they do in the weather around here. It feels like a higher temperature, and I was just thinking, these guys are going to be in the field, running around, sweating away. And I don't know how they're going to handle it. Because I walked down the street yesterday and it felt like it was 100. And I swear to God, I thought I was going to die. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who you may know from the outfield. He uh, came out with a great new album called Out of the Darkness. And he just got done with a retro Futura tour. Our guest is Tony Lewis. How are you doing, Tony? Hello, Steve. How are you? Good. Okay, I want to ask you something. You just were on the retro Futura tour. And you guys played across America. And you played outside some of these venues. What's it like to be on stage when it's so hot? Because you look into the crowd and you see people in shorts and halter tops and all that. But you guys, you're you're you dress nice. What's it like to perform? Does it is it harder to perform when it's hot out? So I come from England, so any bit of sunshine I appreciate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, most most of the year we, we deal with rain. So, you know, coming out uh, on a, a plane outside in the U.S., you know, in, in the sunshine, it, it's a treat for me. You know, it's, I love it. I, I can I, I play anywhere, any venue, inside or outside. You know, I just like playing. That's great. Now, I want, I want to talk about the album, but I want to talk about your new album, Out of the Darkness. It's very interesting uh, that you, you after... Uh, John had passed away, you took some time off of music. Was that just because you didn't know what direction you wanted to go in? Or were you just thinking, you know, I have to regroup? Well, I lost my best mate, so I, I really didn't know my up from my down. You know, I was just in a bad way. I, I couldn't pick up a guitar for the first year. I just didn't want to listen to music. It wasn't like I didn't know what direction to go. I just didn't want to I just didn't enjoy music anymore. So, so uh, you know, I got back back into it, you know, and started re- recording. But I, I'd, I'd lost my way a little bit for, for, for lyrics. And my wife, she, she she helped out. She said, would you would you want to write about, can I help you? And I had these backing tracks um, recorded. And she, she said, do you, want me, do you want me to give you a hand? Because so, my first song, I was just writing about going out tonight looking for a fight. <laughs> so, well, you know, that... That's not what people want to hear, you know. It's, you know, it's not very inspiring. And yeah, she sort of just basically just, you know, <clears throat> I had a backing track and we did the lyrics to the backing track, and it all sort of just fell into place. You know, I did the melodies and structured the songs out, and produced it myself, and yeah, just uh, to this day, I still don't know how we did it. I really don't. You know, it's just enjoyed it well has had does your wife have a background in music or i mean how did this happen because you've been married i guess for a while and you know and it's it's like anything you know like my girlfriend will say i want to help you go food shopping and i go no because i have my own little routine i go to when she does that it throws me off but what was it did, does she have a background in music no she didn't but she's very good at telling a story you know, she's very good with word stuff and putting letters together and just you know, just you know, she'll she'll write she'll write stuff in about five or ten minutes, you know, and and I think, wow, where did that come from? You know, it's and I didn't know she had no no musical. She's she has, she's not musical. She doesn't play any instruments or anything like that. But she just 
she's just good with words. And when when I write, I I sort of criticise everything I do. You know, I just I did I did a, a I did some recordings years ago on Paul Studio, and some of the songs, you know, I just I just don't really make any sense, you know. And, and, and but what she did, she told a story. So so even on a tragic story, I, I like to put a a positive spin on it, you know. And that's that's how it how it sort of came about. Well, it's funny because, you know, writer's block, people say sometimes it's that they say it's a lot of people think if they don't write, they say it's because you, you, you can't write at all. But I think writer's block and it sounds like what you went through is when you write, it just it doesn't seem like it's any good when you write it. And it's very frustrating. Yeah, because when it's, you know, I suppose, you know, with the Edward and John and Bernie talking thing, because Elton John's probably not a natural writer. He likes Bernie's words, but he likes to put music to that. And it it's almost like sort of starting with a blank canvas, you know, you've got all these words and you think, right, I'll, I'll put a melody to that. Cause I'm, I, I can put melodies together and choruses and play guitars and keyboards and drums and just, just basically just produce it myself. But th- that th- the lyrics was, was, was something I always struggled with. Now, you played all the instruments on the album, I believe. When did you start first playing music? Were you a young kid, and what did you start playing first? Well, basically, uh, it was a, a friend of my sister. Uh, her brother had an electric guitar, and he used to get together with, with his mates, and they used to go up and hear and play. And they couldn't play, but they just liked the sound of an electric guitar. And I thought, well, I wish I had the money for an electric guitar. I really liked guitars, and he had acoustic, and he was going to throw it away. So don't throw it away. Can I, can I have it? And then took it home, and I just played this acoustic to um, along with I played along with records, an old Danset mono uh, record player, and to speed speed the, the songs up so I could make out what the bass was doing because I was always always interested in bass and guitar as well. So that's how I sort of just taught myself really from a, that age, you know, fifteen. So you start playing, and now when do you start trying to form your own bands? And it was something that you were thinking, this will be my whole life, because you've been a musician all your life. Yeah, the, the first school band was with Alan, Alan Jackman, and he, that was that was terrifying, because I, I, mean, I didn't, didn't even sing in them days. I, I just sort of played the bass. And, and it was like that, that, that thrill of being up on stage was like amazing, you know, and I, and some years later, I played in sort of cover bands in pubs. But uh, when I met up with John, uh, we were formed a band called Sirius B back in like in late seventies with Alan as well. It was like a prog rock band, and then we um, then the pub punk thing exploded, and we weren't able to sort of get any gigs. You know, we thought, okay, well, we'll just put this one aside. You know, we'll, we'll forget this one. And then years back, years rolled on, and and Anna said that John was writing, uh, recording in his own uh, port studio in his flat at home. Would I be interested in playing bass and singing along? You know, because he'd seen me playing at a pub. And he said, well, you, he said, I didn't know you could sing that high. I was singing, singing uh, Messages of Bold, police songs. I just thought everyone could sing that high. <laughs> So I gave him an, an inspiration. I think I'll write some songs with, with, with you singing, you know, that with the high, high, you know, the high sort of register. 
and that's how it came about. It was started off as a project, and it ended up sort of being a, a project called the Baseball Boys. And the Baseball Boys that that came from John had seen the, uh, the Warriors, the film The Warriors with a street gang called the Baseball Boys. Everybody loved no, that movie. The, Everybody loved that movie. That's one of those classic movies that people don't talk about, and people who have seen it because it's such a cult following. When you say the Baseball Boys, people, I guarantee knew it who saw the movie yeah and I mean 32 years later and I'm still answering the question why why are you called the baseball boys I mean doesn't anyone write this down <laughs> do, we get, do we get this recorded or we just like me explaining it again <laughs> but that's why we had, we had no uh, we had no sort of association with the sport baseball we didn't really, really understand it um, yeah, we've been to a few baseball games, you know, after we got signed, and it was, yes. Yeah, uh, the, whole, the whole thing is a, quite a spectacle, you know. Now, now, how did you end up getting signed? Because you're the baseball boys, you're in, you're over in England. Now, do you start going out and playing pubs in England? Because I hear it so many times that a lot of these bands, they had to really cut their teeth and play a lot of different bars and stuff like that. How did you guys, how did someone find you to sign you? Well, we played all over the UK. Uh, we played in some really dive, real dives, and there was we'd get chains in the kitchen. And, and I remember we, we was in this pub once called the Bald Face Stag, and we was getting chains in a, a, a tiny little men's toilet. I said to this bloke who's going going to the toilet, I said, "Excuse me, mate, is there any dressing rooms in this pub?" He said, "You're in it." <laughs> and that's the sort of pubs we played at, you know, for very little money, going all over the place. And, and we sort of uh, got interest by uh, American management. He had to work for MAM. It was like a entertainment talent agency that they, they had Tom Jones on their books. And he had a little office in in the West End. And he said he knew Steve Roboski, um, who was at EMI. And Steve Roboski was going from EMI to um, Columbia. And he was going to be signing the Beastie Boys. He said, I want to sign the outfield. So you could just... Give us six months, and I promise you, I'll, I'll sign you. So we we got signed basically just on a on a, a photograph, which I was standing on the box because John was six foot was six foot four, and a demo tape and a photograph. We didn't even have to showcase. We got signed pretty much the same time as uh, by Steve Roboski and uh, with the Beastie Boys as well. So you get signed now. When did they change your name from the Baseball Boys to the Outfield? Uh, just at just at the point of signing, because it, it's, it's, they said if we're going to sign you, we we can't use a, a name called the Baseball Boys because that's that's a national sport and it's not a, not a great not a great name to to use. How about the outfield? Because there's three people in the outfield part of the the baseball pitch. So we said, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll go with that. But not really understanding what the outfield was, so we went with that, and then yeah, we got signed. Now they sign you, and now they put you in studio. Are you in England recording, or, or do they bring you to America to record your first uh, album? We recorded "Play Deep" in Air Studios in in, uh, in London, in the West End. In fact, it's that's that's actually moved now to Hampstead. That's not no longer a studio now, sadly, in Oxford Street. Because I think the lease ran out on it. But we did both albums there in Air Studios, two one four Oxford Street. So you get done the album, it's played deep, and 
how does it break in America? And when do you guys first come to America to tour behind it? Well, we went, uh, we went and saw in, in a 15-seater minibus on a very, like, shoestring budget. And with our personal manager driving this minibus that he'd never driven in America before, so it's quite terrifying. <laughs> and Sayers and So have been released. And we went all over America, and it was, it was pretty rough. It was pretty, I mean, we, but we were excited at the same time, you know, staying in cheap hotels and cheap rooms and shit doubling up and, so it did well for us, but didn't wasn't a huge success throughout the country. So when we back went back to England in '85, they put Your Love on AOR radio um, just to keep us in on the radio and keep us in people's minds. And that song just had a life of its own. You know, it just grew and grew. You know, from January, February, March, all through the spring, and then through like up to the summer, it became a you know a huge a huge hit. Now, do you remember the first time you ever heard one of your songs on the radio? Yeah, I remember hearing Sad and So in England on Paul Gambaccini's show, and it was and all the hairs of my neck stood up. You know, it was just an amazing feeling. And hearing, you know, your love uh, off the radio, yeah, it was just just incredible. I, I, I was telling someone else I did an interview with, I remember the very few times I'd go into a laundry to clean my clothes. <laughs> Sitting there, sort of falling, sitting there falling asleep with the radio on and the headphones, and it was, it was the very end of Cindy Lauper singing True Colors, you know, True Colors like a rainbow. And it's just like I thought, oh, that sounds nice. I'm just nodding, not, nodding off, and then I was woken up by my own voice. Oh, <laughs> they're on vacation. But I leapt out and thought, what the hell is that? <laughs> no. The song becomes huge, and I, I talked to a lot of guys, and it's funny, I talked to uh, different people who have been in the 80s, who were popular in the 80s, and we talk about how important the video was back then, and I'm, I'm, I'm from the MTV gener generation, I mean, I, I grew up when MTV just started, I was watching that, we all watched it, we were addicted to it. For you, what was it like shooting that video, and that must have really made an impact, because everybody... I'm, I'm 53. If I talk to anybody who's 45 or over, we know that video. How, when, did you think the video would take that such an impact? And what was it like shooting that? Was it on a low budget or what was it like? <laughs> no, it wasn't on a low budget. If anything, in the 80s, the, the budgets were like outrageous. You know, 240, 250 grand for a video. It's like, what? You know, it's just, when you think now, you, we, I, I did, did a video into the light. On, on my iPhone, my wife filmed it, you know, and it just cost like nothing. But the budgets then were like crazy, you know. I mean, the first the first opening scene, I've got long hair, and then it goes to me singing, I've got short hair. So I don't know who the continuity director X was at that time. <laughs> <laughs> what was all that about, you know? And it, it took hours and hours and hours to, to and again, shoot again, and again. Because even John said to me, I'm not John Wayne. I don't know why they're filming us like this. This is not music. You know, he didn't, you know, we didn't understand it. But, you know, because it's MTV, you know, premiere and it's it's all about vision and stuff, well, we understood it, you know. But what we couldn't understand was why it took about, like, 14 hours just to shoot one song. You know what I mean? It was just, I think it was more from the, a director's point of view than the band, you know. He, you lose the spontaneity of, of a song when you keep going over it and over it and over it. But when you see the video, you know, it's it's fine. You know, I, 
I look at that and I still don't think it's got any any connection to the song. Right. <laughs> well, you know. I'll just get up, I'll just get up. The more I saw it, the more I see it, the more I get confused. I'll be, <laughs> Well, it's funny. What the hell's going on? It's funny. As soon as we're done this interview, I'm going to go check out the hair part because that stuff blows my mind. My girlfriend's like that. She eyes continuity stuff so much. She's like, it, the, the glass is half empty, and he didn't even take a sip, and now it's empty. So now I have to watch that. Yeah, hair. yeah, <laughs> yeah. My wife's like that. She said, "Don't go back. Go back. Visual. Thank God for visual search, or or, or don't thank God for visual search." Now we go. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, He's got a different, got a different jacket on, or his hair's different, or her, her hair's different. So, so if you check out the, the start of the start of the video, I walk in with a grey coat on, with John and Alan and the band. And I've got long hair, and then it cuts to the start of the song, and my hair's like six inches shorter. <laughs> so, so you get done the video. Now, do you notice the impact of your record sales and your popularity? after that video starts playing. Because as we know, MTV just plays video after video. They'll play them so many times a day. Did you notice a difference in the album sales and just people getting to know your music? Uh, to be honest, mate, I, I really think that that song was born through radio. You know, people hear that song and they associate, you know, the, 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 what they were doing at that time, you know, where they were... Uh, leaving school or starting a new job, having their first girlfriend, you know, it, it just conjures, conjures up that period of time. I don't think the video, I don't think the video sold it. I think, I think this, I think it was just the fact it was on radio all the time. You know, I hope I don't sound ignorant, but I, you know, I, I would just it, it, even this last tour, Retro Futura tour, it wasn't until we did like all Love and World, you could see someone go, oh, it's him. Do you know what I mean? So. If, so if video was that strong, people would have been knowing who I am anyway. Right. You know, we weren't sort of, we weren't Duran Duran. We weren't like, you know, cosmetics and big hair and, you know, I've got to make sure I've got, I've got all my uh, makeup on and my, you know, my sister's clothes. You know, it's, it's you know, we, we, we just were a band that grew up in East End and just liked playing together, you know. Now, now who is Josie? It's, it's a made-up name. It's not... She doesn't exist. Okay, I always wonder, because that's... You know, you know the, 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 per, the person you should ask is sadly not here, my mate John. He's... You know, we... we, we that was written in about 20 minutes. It, we... we was, I was his flat, uh, which you call apartment, and in, in the corridor, off the corridor, he had a small... He said, write this down quickly. And he, had, he did this sort of cars type, because he's very, he's a very big fan of the cars. Joseph's on a vacation for, oh, yeah, sounds good. And, and we had a, in, in 20 minutes, we had a song. So that's a great little song, great little pop song. And then, you know, 32, 33 years ago, it's the song still, still huge. It's you know it's amazing. It's funny because I, I you know I lived in LA for a long time, and uh, someone I know, their friend was in town. And we were at a bar, and her name was Josie. And you know, after a few drinks, if, if you meet someone whose name is Josie, you always say that line because it's just a, it's a, a line that everybody knows. I mean, it's just funny. I feel bad sometimes for girls named Josie because they probably hear it every day of their life. Yeah, because it sings better. I mean, it, you know, you wouldn't have the same impact if it was Natasha or Elizabeth. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it wouldn't sing right, would it? <laughs> 
<laughs> so so the the song starts becoming big and you start becoming big and I was looking you went on started going on tour I know you went on, out with the Hooters who um, I'm friends with David their drummer who's a wonderful guy and you went out with a bunch of people what was it like as you were starting to open for these people where you're playing now bigger venues and you probably had a hit pocket under your a hit mute song under your uh, belt so it must have just been you must have been accepted as soon as you guys hit the stage yeah, we enjoyed you know several tours. I mean, Starship was that was quite a long, a long tour. We did two, two legs, you know, three months per leg, and it, it was, you know, it was a long time. And a bit, very professional unit, great, great people. And all I remember is just seeing a mass of t-shirts, played each t-shirts. You know, it's just it was incredible. It was, you know, we weren't too bothered about you know headlining everywhere we went. We were happy just to sort of play with big names, you know. Like uh, Michael Mechanics and and the, the, I think the biggest one that I remember is, is Journey with Steve Perry. We did ten we had ten shows with Steve Perry and Journey, and that was phenomenal. You know that was a, a, a great stage, great venues, huge venues, and I just loved he, he, just watching him. Just his, his voice was just like phenomenal. Then then we had to we we couldn't do the rest of the tour. We had to go back and do that second album, uh, Banging. But if we hadn't uh, had to do the second album, we would would have done the rest of the tour. Now, what's it like when you have to go back and do a second album when your first album, your debut, is a hit, and I believe your love went up to number six, so you had a hit single, and you know you had a hit single on your belt. Did you feel that there was pressure to outdo this first album, or did you say, you know what, we just have to write what we write, and it'll be good because we've already proven our success? Well, I mean, banging went gold. So for any any band starting off, to get a gold record is like monumental. You know, we just thought every, you know, from the second album was every was a bonus. You know, I, I didn't feel as though we we couldn't fail because you can you can fail. You know, no one can beat their first album. Yes, that everyone has that sophomore jinx thing attached to the second album. If you know, can we do it a second time? But we just did. You know, just. Just basically, it is more of a, a rock, more of a rock album, darker album, and you know we couldn't produce play deep too. You know, we just you have to progress, and that's what we did. So the second album, how does that sell? Are people are people buying it, or what? What are they? Is it something that they're not used? To? As you said, it's a different sound. Are they not used to it, or how did that sell? It it, it sold very well. Yeah, it went. I mean, we've got a gold album from it, so. 500,000 copies, I mean, in this day and age, if you sold 500,000 copies, you, you know, you're, you're set up for life, you know, it's, it's you know, you have to sort of, sort of do it sort of in, into perspective, you know, that the first album started gone over 3 million, and, okay, played uh, uh, Banging wasn't as huge, but it didn't need to be, because we'd already set a precedent, you know, we could... We could make records, we could be on the radio, we could tour whenever we wanted, and it was, we just, all we wanted to do was just, at the end of the day, we just, just make music together. Now, what do you, where are your gold and platinum albums? Do you have them up somewhere? Yeah, they're, they're, they're in my music room. And do you ever just think, I mean, I would, you know, as a musician, because there were so many musicians across the country, you must just sit there sometimes and look and go, Holy crap, we did that. That must be a great feeling. 
Yeah, I find it hard to sort of take in, to be honest. It's almost as if, like, this, it was another person doing it. It's just really weird. You get up and out of body experience looking at them, them out, them, them playing them albums, you know. It's just, it's phenomenal. And it's what, because of the older I've got, you know, I'm just turned 60 now, and I, and I just did the Retro Futura tour. I hadn't toured for 14 years, so I didn't know if I was going to be able to sing that high every night and, play as good and and, and I, I just I think I appreciated more on this tour than I did in, in, in the early days because you know I was just appreciate the fact that someone wants to come along and to pay to, to see you now after the you you the outfit recorded a bunch of albums and and you sat there through you saw the music trend change you know we went from watching as i said mtv with with 80s music you know which i loved as we called new wave and then the music was also at the same time there was the uh glam metal and then grunge comes in what does it do to a band when you see the music and you're as you said you're already had the success but what does it do to a band when you see the music landscape change do you sit there and think we're just going to do what we want to do or do you try to get involved in that landscape i think that landscape had to happen in the 90s especially a band like nirvana i mean you you'd never ever hear another band like that not in my in my lifetime that made such an impact that just sounded so real and so like it had to happen it was just you know there's the poodle rockers and the, the big 80s thing which I find it's you know phenomenal. It's still it's still big and still popular. You know when music changes, you have to sort of just go with it. You know, I, I me and John never felt obliged to sort of want to do a you know like a, a Nirvana type album or Pearl Jam album. It's like we we just make this sound. So if it's not the time's not right, we just sort of go okay. We'll just carry on recording, and when the time's right again, and when that that sort of trend of music, you know, eventually dies, perhaps, it, you know, it'll go back to the real classic songs again, which I think it's proved to be right. Now, your albums, you know, you started in 85 and you went through 2011 and, and in through, you know, there's their albums some six years between, some one year between, some five years between. How did your you and John's songwriting stylings grow? Because, you know, I'm sure as you get older and you get wiser, and you already know that you've had success, you probably can write where you can write for yourself. How did you, how did your songs writing styles change at all? I think the writing styles change because, you know, hard, hard disc recording has emerged from, you know, t tape, tape recording. Sadly, it's sort of become sort of rarer, and the big studios were, were closing down, and a lot of people were, were recording at home which I, I did this album at home, but it was mixed uh, on, in a big studio on a big SSL desk. So that sort of comfort zone probably probably takes you, probably sort of doesn't, you, you probably lose that edge as, as you would be going to a big studio with a band and we're all pitching the ideas. And it's almost like a boys club where you can just go in and do a bass guitar track or guitar track and do a drum track. And you've all got, you know, your own sort of opinions and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great sort of um, bonding experience. But, but when you get, you know, Pro Tools that emerge and you can record at home, perhaps you, you do see the world through comfortable eyes rather than 
you know, I that you know, if you'd come back off tour, you'd you'd write stuff about what inspired you when you was away, and whereas you you're at home, you know, you, you're watching the, the football game or a you know a soap opera on the TV, and you you know you probably you probably limited for inspiration. So now you said you hadn't toured. Uh, you had toured since two th- uh, in fourteen years. So that'd be two thousand four. Why did you stop going yeah. on the road? Was there a certain reason why you stopped going on the road, or you just didn't want to, or I mean, why would you stop? Well, I mean, we we had enough of it by then, you know, because we had a, we, the last tour. We 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 had shows cancelled, and we had to pay for a, uh, a bus lease that was sort of losing money, and we were getting pretty tired with each other. And we were we weren't arguing, but it was just getting you know, it, perhaps this is time to sort of call it a day for a while and let's not you know go there anymore because it was we were getting shows but it, there were obviously shows getting cancelled and it, you know th- things didn't get ugly but it was just like it wasn't a, a, a good a good a good period and then obviously John had his first uh, uh, cancer um, and that was sort of thing, you know they had to go, undergo uh, treatment for that so we took a back back seat for that and then the, obviously you know, the, the, the cancer came back uh, secondary many years later and you know it, it just you know it just it just took its toll you know we were still we were still recording songs even up until up to about three months before before he died but we were still um, still loved recording and, and playing but you know we, that's why we sort of shied away from the touring bit of it because um we were a little bit disillusioned, you know, because deals out there weren't the same as they were before. We, even the, the last album we did, Replay, we just put it to iTunes. We didn't; it wasn't hugely promoted. We just did it in our own sort of our own way. See, you know, it's funny, like iTunes and stuff. That it, it makes me miss like the record store. Like when I was a kid, it was a big thing. We would ride our bike like two or three miles. If our parents knew we were young kids riding our bikes to get records. It was something where it was a great thing. You would buy an album, you would look at it, you would open it up, you look at the lyrics, you love the cover work. Now, the way music is, for us old school people, I know albums are coming back, but it's just so weird because, you know, when you were a kid and you bought an album, you wanted to make sure every song was good because you're spending your money. But now, kids can just buy, like, one single. And I think it's sort of sad for for just the the backbone of music. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in different media now. It's, you know, even like, I was, I was told that even iTunes probably won't be downloads available soon. It'll just be just be all total streaming. I mean, someone said on Facebook, said, yeah, can I get your album on um, on CD or uh, vinyl or wh- whatever it is these days? And that's, that quote said it all, really, because, <laughs> you know, you haven't, you haven't got that physical thing in your hand that's a representation of that body of work you know it's just played on the ether you know and it seems to sort of doesn't seem to have any value anymore now how did your retro futura tour come about did they come ask you or was it something you were interested in did you want to get back on stage because you had created a new album or how did that tour come about for you well it's virtually sort of uh finished the album and got signed last October and during that time um, 
Nick Haywood had, had dropped out of the Retro Futura tour, and the people that were doing the tour asked uh, Randy, who's my manager, would uh, Tony entertain the idea of, you know, filling in um, Nick Haywood's spot? You know, we'd, we'd love to see him, you know, play, play some outfield songs. And... So, uh, yeah, he asked me, and I sort of thought about it for a few days, and that thought, yeah, I mean, it's, it'd be a great way of coming back in, and it, it sort of coincided with... Um, the release of the album as well so no one on that tour had anything new out and i was the only one on that <clears throat> on the uh, retro futura tour with a, with a with a cd so it made sense to do it uh really really enjoyed it really enjoyed it now what was it like that first night you were going back on stage because as you said it's been a while you know you're good you know people, I mean, basically, you know people like your music. Because I went to the Retro Futura tour a few years ago in, in uh, at the Greek in L.A., and it was uh, Howard Jones and Thomas Bailey and Katrina. And you go, and you know the music, and you love it, and the fans are there to appreciate the music. So you know that going for you. But were you, were you a little bit nervous going back on stage for the first time? Because you're in front of a pretty big crowd, and I'm sure you want to deliver. Yeah, I was very nervous that first night really was it was and to go on stage and not to see my best mate John you know not on stage that was pretty hard that was pretty weird to, to do um, to that whole experience but after about the second song I started sort of feeling pretty confident and I had a good band and that we rehearsed pretty well and uh, yeah and after the sort of first once I got the first two or three under my belt I I felt confident again and actually just really loved loved playing again. Now, what is it like when you sit there and you play, and I believe there's a clip on, uh, I saw a clip somewhere from, you were in, I believe, Salt Lake City, where the people are singing the lyrics to uh, your love. What is that feeling? One, I think it must be a great feeling because people know the lyrics, but two, as a creator and a person who sang it his whole life, you must have been like, hey, guys, can, can you sing it a little better? <laughs> You're making my work look bad. What is it like when people are singing back your lyrics to you? It must be just sitting there. That must just be the best feeling. It's amazing feeling. It's, it's, it's just that song. That song just grabs people. It, it, just, it, it sort of rekindles their memories of you know where they were when it, when it first came on the radio and it's, you know, it's such an iconic song. And even when we played in South America and even Panama and, you know, Central America, everywhere we went, everyone knew that song. And everyone, sort of the crowd, just, you know, just stood up in their, from their chairs and just just went for it. You know, and it's just, I don't know, it's just, it, it, it's quite a simple song, but I think it's just because it's the way it was, it was recorded, the way it was sung. And, you know, it's just one of those sort of special songs that... Uh, I'll never get tired of singing. Now, what when the outfield was at in its heyday, when you were headlining tours or in festivals, what is the biggest crowd you ever played in front of? I think one of the biggest crowds was like 45,000 people in Trinidad in the port of Spain, which is the uh, the cricket ground you know, in Trinidad. And, yeah, that's the whole, the whole stadium is full of people, you know. It's just pretty amazing, huh? But just to give you that some sort of put in perspective, I, I went to see uh, Robin Stones with Tanner, uh, who owns the Rettle Company in Madison. And we, went, we was in the Gold Circle. 
and the Olympic Stadium. And that place holds sort of 37,000 people just in the stadium. Now, the whole, the whole pitch was full of people as well. So, so there was probably about 45 to 50,000 people there to see the Rolling Stones, you know. And, and it, it reminded me of, of playing in the port of Spain, you know, it's huge, huge place. Now, now that you the retro tour is done, tour is done, I'm sure they'll probably do it again next year. Is it something you like to do again, or do you plan to go out and maybe do a, a a show where you sit there and you play your new album and you play the outfield hits? Because people seem to like that. People sort of like the stripped down thing. I went to see Graham Parker at a record store out here, and it was just wonderful. And everyone just gets into it. Is that something you would like to do? We've done that before. I mean, I've got mixed feelings about stripped down things because I remember me and John did a, an acoustic tour and there was a lot of angry people who wanted it thinking, I don't know if it was because it was sold that way, it was wrongly promoted, people were going there thinking, expecting the band. And it was just me and him just just playing acoustically. Um, Providing it's set up in that sort of way, you know, that that's fine by me, but... I just love playing in a full-blown band, you know. I like it. I like it loud. The you know, acoustic thing's fine. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit more intimate as well. You know, I'll I, I read that. I'll read that mind. You know, it's, 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 it's all about the performance. Now that you have Out of the Darkness under your belt, it's a solo album, and you also know that if you ever get writing block, you can talk to your wife, or you have now have someone to collaborate with. Do you plan to do another album or is that something you're not thinking about right now because it's got to be a big it's a big task to take on especially because you play all the instruments I've got pretty much 90% of the second album written and recorded already now so, um, you know when it's when uh, Out of Darkness is you know exhausted its life whatever you know when the record company go well do you want to you know, put out another one. So yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's about as easy as process as the first one. You know, just like just like recording and, and my wife does these lyrics, and I'm just able to put melodies and and structures and arrangements. And yeah, it's just so easy. It's just an easy way of recording, and it's, it's my favourite hobby. Now, now the solo your solo album, Out of the Darkness. Looking back at it. Is it everything that you thought it would be? Are you happy with it, or are you someone who is a strives for perfection? I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Very proud of it. I, I, I mean, even to this day, me and my wife, we, we, we play the album and go, "How did we do that?" You know, we still are, are amazed. You know what we've done. I'm very proud of it. It's, it's a good body of work that sort of represents that period of time. And I've never gone back to any of the songs and remixed or re-sung or I've just, we just wrote them, recorded them, then move on to the next one. There may be a couple that didn't work as strong as the others, but everyone goes through that. You know, they, they, they get 14 songs and pick their best 12 or get 12 songs and pick their best 10. And that's pretty much how it was. Now, one more question before you go. The track, the track selection, the order. Like you mentioned, Nick Haven. When I talked to Nick, he put his songs in a certain order because I think, as I said, when we grow from the album generation, you knew the song play. When it came to putting the tracks in order for Out of Darkness, 
were you very uh, sure of how you wanted to put them in order, or did you? And so they basically flowed, or how did you figure out which way they would go? Into the light, which is track one. I, I think that's the, the you know a good choice for, for track one, and and because of my uh, association with Randy, Randy Sard, he he, he manages me, but he used to uh, uh, promote the outfield with us years and years ago, and he taught us a lot about radio, you know how radio works and how you got to grab the listener in the first sort of five seconds, five to ten seconds, and the sequence of that just for me is pretty much what I'd, I'd have picked anyway. Really happy with it. I, I tend to not overanalyze stuff, you know, because music these days, and that's always been, it's, it's pretty disposable. A lot of people sort of get very, very close and very, you know, personal with their, with their, with their music. I just think there's always another song coming along. It's not like it's fast food, but I don't get too attached to it all. I think, well, that's, that was that period of time. <laughs> that's a good sequence that's a good album let's move on to album two now I don't I tend not to go back I'll go forward well you know what I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me Tony uh, your website is TonyLewisMusic.com can they get the album where can they get the where can they order your 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 music where can it, they find it it can be ordered off the website yeah and you also have a Facebook page yeah okay and also it's on the on Spotify. The album's on Spotify as well. Well, I want to thank you, people. So, people, go out and buy the album. Uh, I call it an album. That's just me. Uh, you stream it. You buy it. Go buy music. Also, go look up at the old videos of the outfield. Remember, now you know the hair thing. So, follow Tony. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 699 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And Instagram, I'm coopertalk1, and that has a lot of food pictures, because remember, I had that health scare six years ago, and I wrote that cookbook. So you can go to stopthesalt.com and buy my cookbook. Uh, it's 120 low-sodium recipes, no pictures to intimidate you, easy ingredients. You can get it at Amazon, but if you get it at stopthesalt.com, I make more money, and we're all happy. Anyway, people, check out the outfield. Check out Tony's new album, Out of the Darkness. I'm Steve Cooper, only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vitamins. Oh, I screwed it up. Anyway, you guys have a great weekend.